State Actor Doctrine. Before United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, was decided by the United States Supreme Court, the case was decided as a circuit case, Federal Cases No. 14897. Presiding of this circuit case was Judge Joseph P. Bradley who wrote at page 710 of Federal Cases No. 14897 regarding the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. It is a guarantee of protection against the acts of the state government itself. It is a guarantee against the exertion of arbitrary and tyrannical power on the part of the government and legislature of the state, not a guarantee against the commission of individual offenses, and the power of Congress, whether express or implied, to legislate for the enforcement of such a guarantee does not extend to the passage of laws for the suppression of crime within the states. The enforcement of the guarantee does not require or authorize Congress to perform the duty that the guarantee itself supposes it to be the duty of the state to perform, and which it requires the state to perform. The above quote was quoted by United Supreme Court in United States v. Harris, 1883, and supplemented by a quote from the majority opinion in United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, as written by Chief Justice Morrison Waite. The Fourteenth Amendment prohibits a state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and from denying to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, but it adds nothing to the rights of one citizen as against another. It simply furnishes an additional guarantee against any encroachment by the states upon the fundamental rights which belong to every citizen as a member of society. The duty of protecting all its citizens in the enjoyment of an equality of rights was originally assumed by the states, and it still remains there. The only obligation resting upon the United States is to see that the states do not deny the right. This the amendment guarantees, but no more. The power of the national government is limited to the enforcement of this guarantee. Individual liberties guaranteed by the United States Constitution, other than the 13th Amendment's ban on slavery, protect not against actions by private persons or entities, but only against actions by government officials. Regarding the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court ruled in Shelley v. Kramer, 1948, the action inhibited by the first section of the 14th Amendment is only such action as may fairly be said to be that of the states. That amendment erects no shield against merely private conduct, however discriminatory or wrongful. The court added in civil rights cases, 1883, it is state action of a particular character that is prohibited. Individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of the amendment. It has a deeper and broader scope. It nullifies and makes void all state legislation, and state action of every kind, which impairs the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, or which injures them in life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or which denies to any of them the equal protection of the laws. Vindication of federal constitutional rights are limited to those situations where there is state action meaning action of government officials who are exercising their governmental power. In Ex Party Virginia, 1880, the Supreme Court found that the prohibitions of the 14th Amendment have reference to actions of the political body denominated by a state, by whatever instruments or in whatever modes that action may be taken. A state acts by its legislative, its executive, or its judicial authorities. It can act in no other way. The constitutional provision, therefore, must mean that no agency of the state, or of the officers or agents by whom its powers are exerted, shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Whoever, by virtue of public position under a state government, deprives another of property, life, or liberty, without due process of law, or denies or takes away the equal protection of the laws, violates the constitutional inhibition, and as he acts in the name and for the state, and is clothed with the state's power, his act is that of the state. 
There are however instances where people are the victims of civil rights violations that occur in circumstances involving both government officials and private actors. In the 1960s, the United States Supreme Court adopted an expansive view of state action opening the door to wide-ranging civil rights litigation against private actors when they act as state actors, for example, acts done or otherwise sanctioned in some way by the state. The court found that the state action doctrine is equally applicable to denials of privileges or immunities, due process, and equal protection of the laws. The critical factor in determining the existence of state action is not governmental involvement with private persons or private corporations, but the inquiry must be whether there is a sufficiently close nexus between the state and the challenged action of the regulated entity so that the action of the latter may be fairly treated as that of the state itself. Only by sifting facts and weighing circumstances can the non-obvious involvement of the state in private conduct be attributed its true significance. The Supreme Court asserted that plaintiffs must establish not only that a private party acted under color of the challenge statute, but also that its actions are properly attributable to the state. And the actions are to be attributable to the state apparently only if the state compelled the actions and not if the state merely established the process through statute or regulation under which the private party acted. The rules developed by the Supreme Court for business regulation are that, 1. The mere fact that a business is subject to state regulation does not by itself convert its action into that of the state for purposes of the 14th Amendment, and, two, a state normally can be held responsible for a private decision only when it has exercised coercive power or has provided such significant encouragement, either overt or covert, that the choice must be deemed to be that of the state. Section 2. Apportionment of Representatives. Section 2. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for President and Vice President of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age, and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, except for participation in rebellion, or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Under Article I, Section 2, Clause 3, the basis of representation of each state in the House of Representatives was determined by adding three-fifths of each state's slave population to its free population. Because slavery, except as punishment for crime, had been abolished by the 13th Amendment, the freed slaves would henceforth be given full weight for purposes of apportionment. This situation was a concern to the Republican leadership of Congress, who worried that it would increase the political power of the former slave states, even as such states continued to deny freed slaves the right to vote. Two solutions were considered. Reduce the congressional representation of the former slave states, for example, by basing representation on the number of legal voters rather than the number of inhabitants guarantee freed slaves the right to vote. On January 31, 1866, the House of Representatives voted in favor of a proposed constitutional amendment that would reduce a state's representation in the House in proportion to which that state used race or color as a basis to deny the right to vote in that state. The amendment failed in the Senate, partly because radical Republicans foresaw that states would be able to use ostensibly race-neutral criteria, such as educational and property qualifications, to disenfranchise the freed slaves without negative consequence. So the amendment was changed to penalize states in which the vote was denied to male citizens over 21 for any reason other than participation in crime. Later, the 15th Amendment was adopted to guarantee the right to vote could not be denied based on race or color. The effect of Section 2 was twofold. Although the three-fifths clause was not formally repealed, 
it was effectively removed from the Constitution. In the words of the Supreme Court in Elk v. Wilkins, Section 2 abrogated so much of the corresponding clause of the original Constitution as counted only three-fifths of such persons. It was intended to penalize, by means of reduced congressional representation, states that withheld the franchise from adult male citizens for any reason other than participation in crime. This, it was hoped, would induce the former slave states to recognize the political rights of the former slaves, without directly forcing them to do so, something that it was thought the states would not accept. Enforcement. The first reapportionment after the enactment of the 14th Amendment occurred in 1873, based on the 1870 census. Congress appears to have attempted to enforce the provisions of Section 2, but was unable to identify enough disenfranchised voters to make a difference to any state's representation. In the implementing statute, Congress added a provision stating that should any state, after the passage of this act, deny or abridge the right of any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age, and citizens of the United States, to vote at any election named in the amendments to the Constitution, Article 14, Section 2, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the number of representatives apportioned in this act to such state shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall have to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. A nearly identical provision remains in federal law to this day. Despite this legislation, in subsequent reapportionments, no change has ever been made to any state's congressional representation on the basis of the amendment. Bonfield, writing in 1960, suggested that the hot political nature of such proposals has doomed them to failure. Aided by this lack of enforcement, southern states continue to use pretext to prevent many blacks from voting until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In the Fourth Circuit case of Saunders v. Wilkins, 1945, Saunders claimed that Virginia should have its congressional representation reduced because of its use of a poll tax and other voting restrictions. The plaintiff sued for the right to run for Congress at large in the state, rather than in one of its designated congressional districts. The lawsuit was dismissed as a political question. Influence on voting rights. Some have argued that Section 2 was implicitly repealed by the 15th Amendment, but the Supreme Court acknowledged Section 2 in later decisions. In Minor v. Happersett, 1875, the Supreme Court cited Section 2 as supporting its conclusion that the right to vote was not among the privileges and immunities of citizenship protected by Section 1. Women would not achieve equal voting rights throughout the United States until the adoption of 19th Amendment in 1920. In Richardson v. Ramirez, 1974, the court cited Section 2 as justifying the state's disenfranchising felons. In Hunter v. Underwood, 1985, a case involving disenfranchising black misdemeanants, the Supreme Court concluded that the Tenth Amendment cannot save legislation prohibited by the subsequently enacted Fourteenth Amendment. More specifically the court concluded that laws passed with a discriminatory purpose are not accepted from the operation of the Equal Protection Clause by the other crime provision of Section 2. The court held that Section 2 was not designed to permit the purposeful racial discrimination which otherwise violates one of the 14th Amendment. Criticism Abolitionist leaders criticized the amendment's failure to specifically prohibit the states from denying people the right to vote on the basis of race. Section 2 protects the right to vote only of adult males, not adult females, making it the only provision of the Constitution to explicitly discriminate on the basis of sex. Section 2 was condemned by women suffragists, such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who had long seen their causes linked to that of black rights. The separation of black civil rights from women's civil rights split the two movements for decades. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. 
To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.